0: Well, again, welcome to Willingdon. I uh, needed a table for my coconut and my water. Uh, You'll find out what the coconut's for later on. So for now, you'll just have to be curious. Uh, We're we're going to wrap up our series in the book of John uh, this morning. John chapter 12 is the last installment of the series we've been in all fall. You can turn there uh, in your Bibles. So, I have to gloat a little bit. Um, you know, I'm from Calgary. Last weekend was the Great Cup, the Canadian Football League Championship. And uh, Calgary finally, after three tri- or the third try, three years in a row, was finally victorious. Uh, so, we were celebrating. Uh, <clears throat> but the highlight for me actually was uh, one of the players there who uh, I sort of have a texting friendship with. We met a few years ago uh, when he was a rookie. And now he's their uh, starting middle linebacker. Which may mean absolutely nothing to a whole bunch of you, but for the few of you who follow football, uh, he plays on the defense, trying to stop the ball. Uh, and uh, uh, so he uh, they won, and he was uh, celebrating, his name's Alex. And the cool thing was, Alex was on stage with TSN, and his younger sister, who's uh, developmentally disabled, is his biggest fan. So she climbs up on the stage with him, and she's in the center of sort of all TSN broadcasts for celebration. And it was so cool to watch Alex and his little sister celebrate, Ashley is her name, and she's got the cup over her head, and she's kissing the cup, and and she's in the midst of all of it, And, uh, and all the TSN highlights, they kept showing her. And the cool thing is, when you get to do something, a great victory together, if you've ever been on a team, or been on a missions trip, or maybe a family trip that have this great memorable moments... Uh, In years that follow, when you get together, you know, at the Singleton Family Reunion, Ashley and Alex are going to go, oh, remember that great time we had? Remember when I was on stage? Remember how I was on TV? And you played so great. When the players get together, they're going to talk about it. Right? We reminisce those great moments uh, in our lives. We had that in a family vacation. In 2001, uh, we took our first sabbatical uh, from work as a ministry, as a family. And so we sold our house got in a motor home at the end of January, took our three boys out of school, and left the country for three months. And we drove 86 days and 16,000 kilometers in those three months around coastal USA. On that trip, we also had mechanical breakdowns, the motorhome was leaking water like crazy, and some rainstorms. We had to escape a flood at 4 o'clock in the morning in a campground in Pismo Beach, California, Then we had to go and get our car repaired because ocean water had flooded into the car during that flood. Uh, In Florida, we had a windstorm tearing our awning. Uh, So all kinds of wonderful things happened, and we'd love to do the trip again. (laughs) It was memorable. It bonded us as a family, and so we tell the stories to this day from that trip. Well, this morning's text is kind of one of those storytelling texts. Because in John chapter 11, we have the amazing story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. So, Lazarus is dead, uh, or Jesus is told he's sick. Then he gets a message that he's dead. Don't bother coming. And after three days, uh, he goes to meet Mary and, uh, and the, the family and Martha. And Lazarus is in the tomb. And then, of course, the, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And now we pick up the story in John chapter 12. And in John chapter twelve, uh, there's a dinner. Verse one says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. The therefore is because the Passover is happening. Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. They gave a dinner for him there. Mary served, and Lazar, or sorry, Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the, with him at the table. And so you have this setting. Where they are having a party, and you know that they're going to be talking about the incredible event that they shared together, which was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You could not have a party and not talk about that. Like, that's far too significant. That's way bigger than a family trip. That's way bigger than winning the CFL championship. Right? So, they get together around the table. It says they're reclining at the table. Reclining at the table on that day means not slouching at the table. What it means is they're probably on their side, uh, maybe leaning on their left arm at the table, uh, and their, their legs are cut sort of out at a 45-degree angle, kind of like when you're angle parking on a street, except it's at a table. It's that kind of look. They're reclining at the table, and they're talking about Jesus' impact on the whole community through the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You know, one of the things that strikes me throughout the New Testament is that meeting Jesus always changes our story. Every person that you read about in in the Bible, when they meet Jesus, it always changes their story. They either make a decision to join him or they walk away from him, but it's always something that changes their story. And I think the same is true of us. When we meet Jesus, it changes our story. And so they're talking about how meeting Jesus changed their story. And in the midst of this story that, that's unfolding, and you can imagine the dinner conversations. They're sitting around there, and there's at least 15 people. The disciples are there. Mary, Martha, and, um, and Lazarus are there. And perhaps others, we don't know. And whenever you're, you're reminiscing, you're telling the story from your perspective, right? You're telling the story from what you experienced in that shared experience, And so my kids tell a different story of our trip because they were 10, 8, and 6. So their memories are different. Gwen and I tell different stories because our memories are different. What struck us. So I'm thinking, you know, Lazarus obviously has a different memory. He was dead. Like, think about that. I wonder if people kept asking, Lazarus, did you see a light? Right? Every story we hear about after-death experiences, I always said there was a light. Is everyone asking him, was there a light? Who knows? Mary is thinking, or Martha perhaps is going, Man, sister, you should have seen the look on your face when Lazarus came out of that tomb. You were stunned. I trust it, but you were stunned. Or whatever it might have been. Or when Jesus said, you know, roll the stone away. You know, Jesus, we thought you were crazy. Like that was just an awful... Like what were you thinking, Jesus? And all the people around them. Like the story after story. And suddenly, Mary gets up in the midst of that. And comes over to Jesus because she is so moved by who he is and what's happened. And then she suddenly takes this flask of incredibly expensive perfume. And dumps it out on Jesus' feet. Verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. And anointed the feet of Jesus. And wiped his feet with her hair. And then the house is filled with this fragrance, the aroma of the perfume. You ever walk through a department store and suddenly you hit the perfume section and you're like, whoa, that's strong. we have to admit, when I was a teenager and we were in high school, we walked through these perfume sections. One of the things we tried to do as guys is, uh, you know, they always have samples there. We'd always try to grab a sample and dump it on the other guy. <laughs> that was sort of one of, and then you smell like that all day and you're like, oh, thanks. <laughs> The aroma filled the room Of this expensive perfume That Mary spontaneously in response to who Jesus is What Jesus has done Dumps on Jesus' feet Now you have to remember This isn't just like okay well that's interesting In that day and age One Jewish person would never touch the feet of another Jewish person That was far beneath them That's what slaves did That's what servants did. That's not, if you were a person of regular standing in society as a Jew, you would never touch someone else's feet. Your feet were dirty. That's the most dirty thing. And you're walking around in sandals in a very dusty land. And Mary takes that perfume and dumps it out on his feet. And then she takes her hair and starts wiping his feet. I mean, you talk about awkward silence. I don't know if you've ever been in in a room where somebody does something really strange and the whole room just stops and goes, what are you doing? Like they would have, It would have been stunned, awkward silence in the middle of all the storytelling, all the laughter, all the celebrating, suddenly Mary does this. I think it's just an amazing interruption. Now, some people think, well, you know, if you read the book of Luke, Luke talks about a woman who who pours out perfume on Jesus' feet because she is so overwhelmed by the forgiveness of her sin. She came from a rough background and she's so overwhelmed. She's weeping and and just so full of gratitude. And some people say, well, this is the same, same person. But it's probably not, according to commentators. There's probably two separate incidences. Because in this story, there's no weeping, there's no remorse. It's not because the woman is so grateful. In fact, The Bible tells us, actually, this is a prophetic anointing. In other words, it's pointing to what will happen in the future. That's what's happening here. It's signaling what is to come. It's Mary following an act or a prompting of the Spirit. And for her, the aroma that's filling the room is the aroma of gratitude, the aroma of new life, the aroma of hope, declaring the kingdom that is to come. Now, I find it interesting how people respond to acts of outrageous generosity. I think there's a variety of responses people have, and you can see it sometimes in the newspaper. Someone does something outrageously generous, and some people will say, well, that was a waste. Right? You'll you'll get that. That was foolishness. That was a waste. Other people go, well, why would they do that? And I think sometimes what they're saying is, well, that should have happened to me. I think other times people are just inspired. They go, oh, that's so inspiring. I want to do that. And I'm so inspired by that. And I came across this a number of years ago. There was a story about a family uh, on the east coast of Canada. Ellen and Violet Large were their names. And uh, they were a senior couple in their 70s. And they regularly played the lottery. I don't know if it was 649 or what it was. But they would put in, the, it was a cheap one. It was like the dollar one or one of those. But they won $11 million. And they immediately gave away 98% of what they won. And the paper went into it and go, what are you doing? Why did you do this? And the people thought, this is crazy. Why would you do this? Or if you're going to do that, why didn't you give some to me? What are you doing? And they said, well, if we had decided that if we ever won, we would give it away. Well, why would you do that? We go, well, we don't need it. Why would we need to keep that? So we're fine. And they weren't wealthy. They were just fine. And they had been through cancer and some difficult things. So some went to the cancer ward at the hospital. Some, I think, went to the Red Cross. But the newspapers across the country, the the social media across the country, why would you do this? And the same thing happens here. Verse 4, Judas, one of the disciples, it says, and, and then it gives the descriptor. One of the disciples who was about to betray Jesus said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And, had, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas tries to masquerade as someone who had an altruistic purpose, cares about the poor, but actually he was just someone who was selfish. And the outrageous act elicited his greed. It sort of pushed the button of his greed and said, you gave that away and that could have been, I could have had that. I think it's always interesting when there's this outrageous act of kindness, what does it touch within us? When we see God's outrageous acts of grace, what does it do to us? Judas was offended. And John points out Judas's deceitful heart throughout the book of John, actually. He doesn't say he's misguided. He actually describes Judas as evil personified, a greedy thief because he was with Jesus to see what he could gain from Jesus as he hoped Jesus would bring in a new political, religious uh, governing order and Judas could be a part of that for his personal benefit. Now you have the other response in verse 7 from Jesus. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me. Jesus redirects the conversation and Jesus is saying this is not about the stewardship of resources. This is not about the poor missing out. He said the poor are there and we should take care of the poor but that's not what this text is about. Jesus is recognizing the prophetic nature of what Mary is doing and he elevates her event and the significance of her event because Jesus is recognizing that when Lazarus was raised from the dead, Lazarus went from death to life. But that act actually triggered the beginning of Jesus' journey from life to death. As soon as Jesus did that, the road for Jesus was set. The opposition towards Jesus was elevated. And now the road was set and Jesus knew that. Why would Jesus say that this woman can keep such an expensive item? It's interesting. He's saying, he's recognizing that what Mary gave was preparing him. And he said, keep it for, a day, for his day of, of death, for burial. He was recognizing the significance of what she was doing and the purposes of it. And it's interesting that one commentator I was reading was speculating, saying, well, if it's 300 denarii, that value, that number, is what an average person in that day would, would earn in a year. That was a year's salary. So that perfume represented one year's salary for Mary. Why was she keeping something that was worth one year's salary so extravagant like perfume? They would say, well, most likely, if she was keeping something that was of such great value, it was most likely because it was part of her dowry. And you needed your dowry to get married. So when, a, when your daughter's hand was asked for in marriage or you were arranging marriage in that day, part of what you offered as a father was the dowry. And so what the commentator is suggesting is that if she is giving up her dowry, she's actually giving up her marriage ability. And if she's giving up her marriage ability because she doesn't have a dowry or the dowry is much less, she's also giving up her security. Because in that day and age for a woman, women had no standing in society. So your security is because of marriage. That's how you're taken care of. And then your future security in old age is because you have children. So Mary is forfeiting her security in the present and her pension plan in the future. You think about the significance of an act that's worth a year's salary, that she willingly... And joyfully pours out on Jesus. The one whom she loves. The one whom she is committed to. And the one whom she is prophetically preparing for burial. You know I think it's also interesting that while being with Jesus always changes our story. I think it's because Jesus will always demand a response from us. I don't think you can meet Jesus and take what he teaches seriously without a significant response. And that response could be embrace or that response could be rejection. But there's always a response. Because Jesus' claims are so absolute. Jesus' claims are so clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father but through me. That claim has no wiggle room to it. That claim does not say, well, I'm one of many ways. That claim does not say, there's other options. That claim says, it's Jesus or nothing. There's always, it demands a response. And if you take the words of Jesus seriously, there's always a response. Mary's response is, Jesus, you are the most amazing person I've ever met. You are, I believe that you are the son of God. I believe you are the one who has brought hope into the world. And so the response is, I'm giving you the most precious thing I have. The symbol of my life and the most precious thing I own. And I'm just going to pour it out on you. And the people also were responding. Because Jesus demands a response. So in verse 9 it says, When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus demands a response. So they're coming because they heard the story. They heard the story. And so they come because they want to meet Jesus. They want to meet Lazarus. And there's this response that's happening. And the chief priests are responding because they're saying, wait a minute, the people aren't following us anymore. We're losing our authority. We're losing our status in society. And the Roman uh, soldiers are going to actually take action and we'll lose everything that we have, everything that we value. So we need to put Jesus to death and we need to put Lazarus to death as well. Which is kind of ironic when you think about it. Someone has the power to raise people from the dead and you want to try and put him to death. It seems like a bad plan. Because he can just raise people from the dead again. But they're so desperate. They're so desperate. The loss is so great. So that is their reaction. Because the response that people have to Jesus is to follow him. It's to follow him. And so, the whole story is coming together. The confrontation is building. I'm curious, what response you have to Jesus? How do you respond when you hear the good news that he shares? How do you respond when, like, over the last few weeks, we've had stories that we've told here of people who've seen miraculous healing in their lives or with their friends? How do you respond? Does that supernatural draw you in? Or does it push you back because it makes you afraid? Because it's unknown. I don't think we can just leave it alone. Most people, when they hear about how God works in the world, they either are drawn in because they go, oh, I want that. Or they hang on more tightly to what creates security for them like the Pharisees are doing here. And the confrontation continues to build here. And the people are hoping, because they're looking at Jesus and they're hoping that he will be the one who will fulfill their dreams and their plans. They're hoping that Jesus will be the means to the end that they want. Look, They're looking for him to give them the everything that they've been looking for. And that everything includes that new earthly kingdom. That new nation of Israel free from Roman rule. Verse tells us that uh, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast to the Passover heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him crying. Hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. And Jesus found A young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So, what's happening here is actually fulfilling customs that are common in that day and age. So, when a general or a king was victorious in battle, people from that city would go out of the city when they heard the king was coming and they would go and meet the king or the general out there, outside of the city and then basically they would have a victory parade back into town with that conquering king. And that's basically what the people are doing here. And they would have branches with them because it was custom for them to come with branches to the festivals. It was part of their celebration. And so they have palm branches. So they would break them off. And so when Jesus comes riding in, they're waving the branches saying, Hail, here is our king. But they're thinking a new general, a conquering king, one who will set up our nation state. We will be free from Roman rule. And everything that we want will be fulfilled in Jesus. The problem is that it's not quite what Jesus has in mind. Even though the people are yelling, actually, statements that come from Scripture. Scripture. When they say, hail, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're mimicking or repeating Psalm 118 and Zechariah 9. That's where those statements come from. And when they say, he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's actually a common phrase used to say, it's the coming of the Messiah, the Savior that they had wanted, the one who was going to give them the everything that they wanted, the one who's going to give them the life they wanted, the politics that they wanted, the rule that they wanted. But here's what they didn't understand and here's what we need to understand. That Jesus plus everything equals nothing. Jesus plus everything equals nothing. So in other words, the people were trying to get Jesus to add to their everything so that they could have what they wanted. He was going to be their king, their savior for their purposes. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. He was not there to eradicate Roman rule. He was not there to play into the hands of the people, even though they had tried doing that many times, as the book of John shows us. Now, here's the irony. As the text I just read said, Jesus came walking or riding in on a donkey. But a conquering general would never be on a donkey. A conquering general would be on, in a chariot with a horse. Pull, drawn or the, or the conquering general would be riding a war horse so I have this picture in my mind they have their palms and they're saying hail here comes the king hail here comes Jesus here's our savior hosanna hosanna and he, Jesus comes around the corner on a donkey right not a horse they're looking up for him they're going where's Jesus all I see is palm branches well, that's because Jesus is on a donkey they want a conquering king instead they have a humble king with a completely different purpose. Instead of bringing political and economic and social freedom, he's bringing new life, eternal freedom, and hope that is so much bigger than meeting their temporal needs. He's meeting their eternal needs, their soul needs, their deepest longings, and their greatest pain. That's the freedom that he brings. And we know this is confusing for him because the text tells us that in the next verses. It's confusing for the disciples. Verse 16 says... The disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. So, glorified—that that that word refers to the fact of Jesus being raised up. When He's raised up on the cross, that's called that's called being glorified. So He's on the cross, and then He dies. He goes into the tomb for three days, raises to new life, ascends to the Father, and then sends the Holy Spirit. And it's that Spirit that teaches the disciples who are now writing the Bible and now through the the teaching of the Spirit they look back and they go, oh, that's what happened. That's what that meant. See, the Bible's being written in hindsight. And now they could understand. You know what? I think God works with us the same way. When we become Christ followers and the Holy Spirit lives in us, we can look back at our story and we go, oh, that's what God was doing. That's how God drew me in. That's how he answered that prayer. I didn't understand it at the time. Why? Because he didn't have the spirit living in you. John 14 says the spirit is your counselor, your teacher and your guide. And just like he worked in the, in the disciple's life, he works in your life and my life when we follow him. And our eyes are open to what he is doing. Now this scene is building. The crowd is ushering Jesus in with this great parade. They're hoping he's going to be their conquering king. And you have to think about um, about Jerusalem and this whole scene, this frenzy. So Jerusalem wasn't that big a place. But depending on who you read, they would say, well, you know, the Jerusalem's maybe a couple hundred thousand people at the most. But during Passover, different commentators would say, it's anywhere from close to a million to two million people converge on this town. So you think about Burnaby by itself, just Burnaby suddenly being two million people on a, on a, for a week. You think traffic's bad now. Well, that's what's happening there. All these people come. And at the same time also, uh, because the Romans were concerned about what was happening every year at the Passover, because all these people are coming, they're thinking if there's ever going to be a rebellion, it's going to be during Passover. So they throw in extra troops. Now on top of that, there's this parade for this new king that's being hailed, and everyone's going, what is going on? The religious leaders are upset. And the text tells us in verse 17, it says, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. In other words, they continued to tell everybody what had happened. Uh, The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So everything's building. Everything's building and the tension is rising. And their people are yelling, here is our new king. Here is our new king. Hosanna. 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 And verse 19 tells us, how the Pharisees, the religious leaders reacted. It says, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Everyone's following Jesus. One of the things I love in this story is as the people are yelling and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're actually saying what is true. Hosanna actually means salvation now. Salvation now is what Jesus would bring. But again, not what they thought. Salvation now is what was his agenda, but the Pharisees didn't see it. All they saw was political and loss and influence and loss of influence of their leadership. Hosanna, salvation now is not what the people saw. What they saw was the political kingdom. And as if to prove a point that the whole world now was following Jesus because of this, John 20, or 12 verse 20 says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So the Greeks were not Greek Jews. They were Greeks. And so they had come from wherever they had come. And it's like John is saying, to prove the point, the whole world is going to follow Jesus. Even these Greeks who are coming from far away want to see Jesus. And so two disciples come and say, Jesus, will you meet with them? Instead, Jesus takes the story in a completely different direction, which Jesus so often does. And he responds, perhaps in a bizarre way, in verse 23, and he says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Fascinating that Jesus would suddenly say, this, you got to come and die. What do you mean I have to die? What are you talking about seeds? What are you talking about, Jesus? They have some Greeks who want to meet you. What are you talking about? And as the story builds to this crescendo, which will ultimately end up in the cross, the people are Wanting Jesus to be this political, social, economic ruler. After all, Jesus has healed the sick, Jesus has fed them, He's raised the dead. He's it's like He's Jesus is your ultimate personal chef, doctor, and long term disability plan. Right? They look at Jesus and go, You could give us everything we want, everything we need. So we're gonna make you king. And now suddenly Jesus is talking about death and dying, not ruling. Not pushing back on the oppressors. Not meeting their personal needs. So what does he mean to die? Well, I grew up in the city. I grew up around concrete, so I have to figure out what does it mean? What's the with the grain of wheat analogy? And I found an article uh, by Dr. David Gibb, who's a PhD in plant physiology. And David Gibb talks about the fact that in every seed is uh, an embryo. And that embryo has a root which goes down into the ground and a shoot that will go up into the sky. But within that embryo, there lies an on-off switch. And that on-off switch is this mechanism that is triggered. And that mechanism goes off uh, at 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And if, it's, if that seed is at 40 degrees Fahrenheit for 40 days, that, that mechanism is triggered. If it's at 20 degrees, the mechanism won't be triggered. But if that seed is at 40 degrees Fahrenheit for 40 days, that mechanism is triggered. And how it triggers is there's that shell around the seed which will not let water penetrate uh, to, so that nothing happens prematurely. But at 40 degrees, at 40 days, uh, suddenly that, is, that uh, shell is penetrated because the, the chemical reaction is triggered. Now oxygen can get in, water can get in. And at that place, the seed now begins to expand, produces sugar and proteins. And out come little roots and little shoots which pr- provide fruit. On one end, on the the shoot end, and roots go down on the root end. And the seed is dead, and you'll never get a picture of that seed again because it's gone. It's transformed into fruit, and the professor says, it's a miracle. So I was thinking about that. You have this seed, and Jesus says, come and die, because when you come and die, there is great life. That's where life happens. But what is it that we definitely do want, want to avoid dying? We don't like things that draw us to that. We don't like things that call us to give up. So I was thinking, what is it that stops us from engaging in what Jesus invites us to, even though he's inviting us to new life, even though he's inviting us to full life, even though he's inviting us to transformation at the very core of who we are, to be who God created us to be. He's inviting us to be the, so that he can be the king of our heart, as we heard before from the kids. Hence the coconut. You've been wondering. So... Coconuts, one of the uses of coconut, besides an interesting drink, which is still in there, is that coconuts can be used to catch monkeys. That's what I found out this week. Coconuts can be used to catch monkeys. How does a coconut catch a monkey? And uh, You can YouTube about this if you don't believe me. It'll come up very quickly. You put a hole at either end of the coconut. The hole on one end is uh, just big enough for a monkey's hand to get into the hole on the other end, when, once you hollow out everything inside, is, uh, is big enough for you to put a piece of fruit into, and then you would drill, a, make another hole beside that. You could put a rope uh, through that or a chain and tie it to a tree or someplace that secures the coconut. Monkey is curious. Monkey is hungry. Monkey comes and puts his hand to grab the fruit. But once it's grabbed the fruit, it can't, because it closes the fist on the fruit, it can't get its hand outside of the coconut. Now, when the hunter comes to grab the monkey, the monkey looks at the hunter and starts pulling to get its hand out. But the thing it won't do, at least for quite a while, is let go of the fruit. And the hunter can walk over, put the bag over the monkey, and capture the monkey. So the monkey has made a prison of its own making because he wouldn't let go of what's of the fruit because he wants the fruit. So perhaps it's a greedy monkey. John 12, verse 25. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. See, the reason that we don't want to die is because we don't want to let go. That's why we don't die and experience the fruit That God wants to give us through Jesus Christ. So I don't know what you hang on to. You know we have this discipleship pathway at Willingdon. Going from being someone who's just trying to figure out who Jesus is. To someone who's leading other people to Jesus. And sharing everything they have. And it's interesting in those stages. I think about what do we hang on to? Before I was a Christ follower. I was hanging on to control. I was hanging on to my fear. I was hanging on to what I thought were things that were were so good. I didn't want to let them go. Because I thought they were too good. And that Jesus would take them away from me. Eventually, I came to the place and realized, that's just a prison. I need to let go. Then I became a Christ follower, and Jesus said, I want you to die. I want you to fully die so I can create fruit in your life. But I kept hanging on to control. I kept hanging on to things, wanting to do things my way. I wanted to add Jesus to my everything, but I didn't realize that that was nothing, and that I could only have everything that he would give me when I let go. I don't know what you're hanging on to. If you've been a Christ follower for a time, maybe God's saying, hey, I want you to be more generous. Maybe God's saying, hey, I want you to give of what I've given you or I want you to serve. I want you to give your job to me because I have greater things for you. Give your marriage to me. Quit trying to control your marriage. Give it to me. Give your children to me because you won't be a good parent until you give them to me. Give that vice to me that you think is your security. Give it to me because friends, what we hang on to is a prison of our own making. Jesus says, Let go. Don't get trapped like the monkey. That's what he invites us to. And he says, that place when you come and die, that is a place where there is great fruit. But if it dies, it bears great fr- much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Anyone who serves me, what happens? The Father will honor him. Why? Because we let go. And then we receive everything that Jesus has for us. And when we die, we realize that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. When we die, we realize that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But as long as you're hanging on, you create a prison of your own making because of what you're hanging on to. That's the beauty of the invitation is that death is actually an invitation to life. And that's the invitation that he gives us. Let's stand for closing prayer. There's two prayers that I would like to pray with us this morning. One, um, I think it'll come up on the screen. You can pray with me. If you've never made the decision to follow Jesus, uh, I would invite you to pray this with me, to let go and to pray this with me, and then I'd like to pray for all of us. So if you want to follow Jesus, pray this. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I repent and surrender my whole life to you. I turn to you for forgiveness and new life. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me the kind of person you created me to be. I want to be like you. And Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and giving me, e- gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that, I invite you to go to the prayer center. People there would love to pray with you and speak with you. I want to pray for the rest of us who are followers of Christ. Father, there's so many places in our lives where we keep hanging on to things and we get trapped like that monkey in a trap of our own making, in a prison of our own making. And we hear the words to come and die and we struggle because we're afraid. And Father, I know there's times in my life I just had to come to the place of just admitting my fear and trusting you and saying, Jesus, I want to give you everything and just pour my life out like Mary poured out that perfume. Because Jesus, you are the one who forgives our sin, who removes our shame and conquers our fear. And so, Father, I pray for people who are hanging on to things. And Lord, I know by your spirit, you're tapping people right now on the shoulder or on their heart, in their mind, saying, you know what you're hanging on to. You know what you're hanging on to. You know what you're afraid to give to God. And God, thank you that you are gentle. And in your prodding, you say, trust me. Give that thing to me. And I will give you life. I will bear fruit in your life. I will pour out my spirit on you. And Father, you have given us the gift of Christ, which this Christmas season is all about. And today is the day of hope, the prophetic announcement of the coming of our Savior. And Father, I pray that for those who know you today who are hanging on tight would let go and give that fear, that thing to you and walk in the joy of the season in the presence of your spirit in the gifts that you give us and the fruit you bear with us and the honor that you give us and promise to your word, like the book of John says. So be with us as we go from this place in new life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.